Hello and uh, welcome to uh, this H.P. Lovecraft book club where I'll be going through all the writings by H.P. Lovecraft that I can get my hands on, his stories, some of his nonfiction writing, his poetry, uh, his letters, whatever I can get I'm going to try to talk about to some degree over the course of this, this podcast. But right now I am kind of for the first unit as I break, I kind of broke up his work as best I could into sort of units or chapters and the first kind of section is all of his fiction writing up until 1919 so we've been working on on those for a while and we're almost halfway through that in fact uh all the stories coming up were written or published in uh, were written in 1919 uh so there was quite a few that was a pretty productive year for for lovecraft and this is one of them uh the story we're going to be looking at today is called old bugs um, written in July of 1919. Um, now, uh, he was influenced in writing this by a friend, Alfred Galpin, and that name will show up into this this story. So it is a bit of a of a. It's directed at him, anyways, and it's it's kind of a warning. It's presented as a bit of a warning for him. Um, and so he said. This was right before like prohibition was about to be enacted, you know, in the progressive era. And and Galpin said, I'm going to try some whiskey, some rye before uh, before prohibition is enacted. And Lovecraft wrote this as sort of a warning. So this is not a horror story, although it does deal with some themes that we're already familiar with uh, when talking about Lovecraft, such as degeneration, uh, decline, uh, some class issues certainly are, are prominent here. Um, you know, kind of the legacy of one's family is certainly very, very big here. Kind of this idea that we in, we inherit certain elements from 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 our past. Um, now, Lovecraft himself did not drink. So, before we get done with this episode, I want to look at a couple of his nonfiction writings from the World War One era in which he he deals with with alcohol. So, he was um, an advocate of of not drinking, anyways. I'm not sure how he, well, I'll have to think about how he would have felt about state state regulation. He didn't really have this kind of anarchist uh, tendency to dis, distrust the state. He often, felt, he often found the state to be a, a useful tool in his, in his stories anyways. And it, and it is here in this story as well. So anyways, um, Old Bugs. Uh, it was published finally in 1959. So it was, it was posthumously published. Uh, just like the story that I'm going to look at next. And the next episode, The Transition of Juan Romero, written around the same time, but not published until after he, he died. So it was really just kind of a, a private story to to warn a friend not to not to begin drinking. Um, so in that sense, it it does kind of come off as a bit of a morality tale. Um, anyways, let's let's talk about this. Um, so the setting for this entire story is a place called Sheehan's Pool Room, which is just a kind of a dive bar um it's set in 1950 um so it's set sometime in the future in a future in which prohibition is still intact and alcohol is still being prohibited and all you know alcohol is consumed only in these these kinds of speakeasies although this is before speakeasies were a thing uh this was being written right at the time when prohibition was being enacted um so in fact the the writer here 
It's a really interesting name. So this is this is Lovecraft kind of having some fun maybe with what he imagined the future might be. Uh, an extra extra sorry. An extra-temporaneous, extra-temporaneous sob story by Marcus Lonelius, proconsul of Gaul. So you got this kind of Roman um, name here. This is just, I think, a, a joke. Don't take it too seriously. But perhaps, apparently there's proconsuls in 1950 in this, this timeline. Um, but otherwise, it looks just like turn-of-the-century America in its setting. Um, so the setting here is Sheehan's Pool Room in Chicago, right in the heart of the Stockyards District. So we have a, a, we begin here with a depiction of industrial society with all its decadence and uh, not even no decadence is the wrong word and all its decay and disgust. The, you know we know from Lovecraft's time in New York from stories he wrote afterwards referring to New York in his letters from that time he hated uh, the big city um, and and Chicago certainly fits into this. So this depiction of of the stockyards it's like something out of out of the jungle almost except well upton sinclair had a great deal of sympathy for the working class uh lovecraft of course has very little of it um here's what he just says its air frightened feigned with a thousand odors such as coolridge may have found in cologne too seldom know the purifying rays of sun it fights for space with an acrid fumes of unnumbered cheap cigars and cigarettes which dangle from the coarse lips of unnumbered human animals that haunt the place day and night um so he has a lot of disgust with the city, and he goes on with this dis description for a while. And, and um, as with uh, the Beyond the Wall of Sleep, you know, Lovecraft likes to dig in his disgust. He doesn't just say it and move on. He tends to repeat it uh, excessively uh, in his descriptions of the settings he's in or the descriptions of the people he sees. Um, so now not only is alcohol consumed here illicitly, uh, but so are narcotics and drugs being shared freely here. So um, even though it's an anti-drinking tale, there's uh, a, basically a, a fairly open culture. In this 1950s uh, dive bar pool hall of, of drugs as well. Um, so there's one worker in Sheehan's pool hall called Old Bugs, named Old Bugs. That's his only name. He doesn't have... A, well, we figure out his name later on, but he doesn't really seem to have a name. Um, and and he's presented just as a, a degenerate uh, has been. But un unlike a character like Joseph Joe Slater in Beyond the Wall of Sleep, who is all and out degenerate, this is a character who's clearly fallen. He's fallen down to his state. So if you're going to write a morality tale about drinking, you need a character who started out having a promising career, a promising future, and then declined. And he spends a good third of his story here getting into old Bugs' uh, character and, and background. Uh, so here's some of what he writes about this. Um, old Bugs epitomized the pathetic species known as the bum or the down and outer. Whence he had come, no one could tell. One night he had burst wildly into Sheen hands, foaming at the mouth and screaming for whiskey and hashish. And having been supplied in exchange for the promise to perform odd jobs, he hung around ever since, mopping floors, cleaning cuspidors and glasses, and attending to a hundred similar menial duties in exchange for the drink and drugs which were necessary to keep him alive and sane. So that's that's pretty much all you need to know about him. He's a drunk who's dependent on alcohol and drugs to to basically get through each day, and he gets he pay, he pays for it by doing menial labor in this pool hall. Um, but we're also told that he talks. 
in glimpses of, of brilliance and, and, and eloquence and sh revealing a past that's knowledgeable. Now, while for Joe Slater in Beyond the Wall of Sleep, this was because of his periodic, uh, periodically being taken over by an some other external entity. Um, this character is, is suggested people realize that he had some kind of more interesting past, although um, it's not really, it's not fairly well known, although we'll get, we'll, we'll get that story later on. Um, there's one person who seems to understand him a little bit more, and that's a bank defaulter who hangs out at the, at the bar. So a guy who forecloses on, on bad loans, I guess. Um, not a very good guy, obviously. Um, and he's hanging out at Sheehan's pool hall. So, um, yeah, that's all you need to know about our bank defaulter. But he shows up a lot in this story. He keeps floating. He doesn't have a name, but he's just the bank defaulter who sort of hangs out here. Um, so he... Old Bugs occasionally will slip into this eloquence when he, I guess he's sober enough or whatever. And so the r rumors start to spread that this guy was a writer or a professor in the past. Leading credence to this belief is that he holds around this picture of a young woman of noble and beautiful features. Uh, so no one really believes that a man like Old Bugs could have a picture like this in his pocket. So it must hint to some previously more successful past. Even his physical features show this uh, a bit of degeneracy. For instance, um, quote, he was a man of immense height, probably more than six feet, though his shooping, stooping shoulders sometimes belayed that fact. His hair, a dirty white and falling out in patches, was never combed. And over his lean face grew a manly stubble of coarse beard, which always was ready, well, which was always to remain at the bristling stage, yet never long enough to form a respectful set of whiskers. So the physical description of him is of being sort of one step from, you know, or maybe many steps in the past, but, but having some past that was more respectful, whether it was in having a proper beard, then uh, standing up straight, you know, having this full set of hair. Right. So, you know, he physicalizes old bugs uh, degeneracy and descent into, into drink. He was also quite fat in his past. We're told that he once was probably overweight, but he still shows the evidence of being kind of, of withering away from, from years of, of bad habits. So he's got this kind of loose pouches and uh, under his eyes and, and in, in his skin. So he's not pleasant to look at, but there's glimpses of, of some past past. Um, for instance, uh, rare intervals, this is Lovecraft again. At rare intervals, he shewed the names which earned him his name. He shewed the traits that earned him his name. He would try to uh, he would try to straighten up, and a certain fire would creep into his sunken eyes. His demeanor would assume an unwanted grace and even dignity, and the sodding creatures around him would sense something of superiority. So he has these moments of brilliance, but these moments quickly pass, and old bugs will always kind of go back to just um, scrubbing the floor. He has one other characteristic that we're told before we move on to the, the story proper. This is the first third of the story. is just our description of Old Bugs and Sheehan's and the stockyards of Chicago, all thrown together you know, in Lovecraft's mind. And that is he will warn first-time drinkers who come into Sheehan's pool hall. He'll warn them not to start drinking, muttering uh, dangers. Now, there's kind of a... a a catchphrase that gets bandied, bandied about in this story, and that is the, the person seeking drink for the first time will seek out, quote, seeing life as it is. And this becomes the kind of code word for 
for getting that first uh, glass of whis whiskey or, or having that first good drunk. Um, and he would warn against this. But being alcohol and feeble, being, uh, being beyond hope, he would sustain these protests only shortly before finally going back to his mop or cleaning rag. All right, so that's our, our description of where we're at here. Now we get the story of Alfred Trevor. So Alfred Trevor, uh, we're told not many people will forget the day that Trevor comes in because it's dramatic. The drama of this day will be revealed shortly. But Alfred Trevor comes into Sheehan's pool hall in order to see the world as it is, to, or to go to the limit, to, to have that good drunk. Now, where is he from? He's from Appleton. So he's from Appleton, Wisconsin, and he travels down to Chicago uh, to, to partake in this, to have his, his night out before he um, gets older. So his name's Alfred Trevor. His name's important here. His father's Carl Trevor was an attorney. His mother is like a literary figure, a writer, an artist. Um, is this the only writer, a female writer, that's mentioned in Lovecraft's fiction? Uh, we'll keep our eyes open for that. I'm not sure. He actually obviously doesn't write many female characters. They're quite uh, few. Uh, the thing at the doorstep is probably one of his richest depictions of a, of a woman character. And she spends the whole novel having her mind taken over by, by another entity. But uh, we do have a, 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 his mother, um, Alfred Trevor's mother, being an intellectual, being an artist, being a poet. Um, and we get a little bit of, of Alfred Trevor's background. Just he's an up-and-comer, educated university guy who uh, is, is ready to begin his life. And he does this. He wants to first see life as it is. So he wants to enjoy drink. Now we get a side story. Uh, about young Galpin. Galpin. Now, Galpin is the name of the person Lovecraft wrote this story for. Alfred Galpin. Um, Alfred Trevor. Well, is it, this is explained later on that Galpin's was once the fiance of Alfred Trevor's mother, and Alfred Trevor's, Trevor's mother names his son after this um, after this first fiance. So, although Galpin is never given a first name, we are told. Um, that uh, later on in the story, uh, Galpin became only a name for parents to quote in warning accents. Sorry, that's the wrong quote. Oh, it's the, it's the very next line, sorry. Her former admirer retained only enough memory to dictate the naming of her only son. So, Alfred Galpin, that's, the, that's what we got here. Uh, so, Alfred Galpin, the, the guy who wrote the story for a real-life person, but fictionalized here, uh, was also... Uh, from Appleton, just like Trevor's parents, you know, would have been from Appleton. So he started, uh, he's the story, he's the morality tale. He's the one who declined for a drink. So uh, he was a very, very talented uh, scholar, a, a literature guy, a, a professor, but, you know, he starts drinking. Quote, evil habits dating from the first drink taken before in woodland seclusion made themselves manifest in the young professor. And only by a hurried resignation did he escape a nasty prosecution for injuries to the habits and morals of his students under his charge. So he has a very problematic time as a professor. So, you know, it's not clear what happened to him. Did he get me too'd? Did he uh, get drunk too much in front of students? Whatever. Did he just decline gradually over time through drink? But he did. He does in any case. Nevertheless, he's quite um, brilliant. Uh, he gives speeches. He's an expert on Poe and Wilde. 
and he has a, a fairly glorious time as a professor until he experiences, until drink finally fully takes hold of him. It seems to take a while for him uh, to decline. Um, now, eventually this leads um, Mrs. Trevor, what would become Mrs. Trevor. I, I'm not sure. I don't think we're given her maiden name, but this uh, Alfred Galpin's fiance, you know, eventually has to leave him. Right. And it's mentioned here that he becomes locally the name. I mentioned this before the name for parents to quote in warning accents. He's like the monster, right? The monster that you warn kids about. It's like, ah, oh, if you drink, you'll become like, like Galpin. He's famous for his, his dramatic decline. Okay. So she leaves him and then soon marries Carl Trevor. I think the soon here is, is important because, um, I want to think that Alfred Trevor is Galpin's son and only raised by Carl Trevor. Um, you know, I, I don't really have any clear evidence here in the story. I looked for it when I was reading this the last time. The closest we have is the that Eleanor Wing. Oh, we do have her name. Sorry, we do have her maiden name, Wing. Eleanor Wing soon celebrated her marriage to Carl Trevor, a rising young lawyer and former admirer, retained only enough memory to dictate the name of the son. Um, Okay, now, despite of all that misguidance about all this warning about what happened to Galpin by his mother, warning of others, he goes to take his first drink. Okay, so this, so we're back to Sheehan's after this, another, another page, another third of the story or so is this background about Galpin and Trevor and their backgrounds. But the climax of the story comes when he orders his first drink. And uh, the bartender is eager to comply but that is when you get this uh, you get this uh, scene led by old bugs. This warning, this warning scene he's done before. This warning the young man not to begin drinking. And I want to say Lovecraft, you know, he's not the kind of guy who hangs out at dive bars. But he the description here is quite striking. I think uh, he's describing the the scene as he's going to to order this first drink. Um, Quote, as the names Trevor, Lawrence, and Appleton fell on the air, the loafers seemed to sense something unusual. Perhaps it was only some sound connected to the clinking balls of the pool table or the rattling glasses that were brought from the cryptic regions of the rear. Perhaps only that, plus some strange rustling on the dark draperies at the one dingy window. But many thought that someone in the room had gritted his teeth and drawn a very sharp breath. Um, and that's, that's going to be old bugs. So she, um, well, Trevor comes up to talk to Sheehan and says, you know, I want to experience life. In fact, he uses that same language. Um, he says, this is my first experience in a place like this, but I'm a student of life and I don't want to miss any experience. And Sheehan says, oh, we have booze, we have Coke, we have other dope, whatever you want, we can provide for you. Right. And then Trevor explains a little bit more about what's driving him to do this. And it comes from poetry. He's driven by poetry to want to drink. He says, I can't read an anachronatic without watering at the mouth. Anachron being, of course, the Greek poet who often wrote about drink. And I believe he was associated, Anachron, the poet, was associated with these anachronatic clubs that would uh, be way, time, you know, educated people could get together for drink and revelry and, and kind of intellectual exchange, kind of a, a literary clip of sort. Um, but... 
he says, I can't get it. I can't read an anachronic without watering up the mouth. So he wants to experience this part of life. And they begin to serve him. But that's when old bugs drops his mop uh, and, you know, gets involved and tries to stop poor Trevor from uh, poor Alfred Trevor from getting involved in any of this, this alcohol nonsense. And after a very dramatic scene, which Lovecraft describes in some detail, he gets up and says, do not do this thing. I was once, I was like you once and did it. Now I am like this. Um, and uh, Trevor is kind of like, well, what are you talking about? And then Old Bug basically begins to wave his mop around, get into kind of a little bit of a bar fight, all to prevent, you know, Trevor from drinking. Yelling various things. He, he's described here as he's wielding his mop like a javelin of a Macedonian hope, hope light. It's a great, great um, description there. He says things like, the sons of Belial, blown with insolence and wine. These are his over-the-top warnings. But he's using this kind of language that's suggested before he's capable of only in those kind of moments of, of lucidity. And old Bugs' final words, he of course has to die, like poor Joe Slater. He has to die for the story to progress. His final words are, he shall not drink, he shall not drink. All right. And around this time, the police show up to kind of investigate the, the hubbub. And as he's still holding his mop like a javelin, old bugs keels over and dies. And that is why this night was so memorable. Both old bugs as kind of uh, battle against the evils of alcohol, his salvation of, of Alfred Trevor, and then his, his sudden and unexplained death. Um, now, the police don't really have much to work on, on on how he died or why but the only real evidence they have is the is this picture and i think it's the bank defaulter who says you know there was that picture you know what could that be and you know there's all this hubbub about that while the police are there but then trevor picks up the the portrait and he immediately recognizes the picture in the portrait because the the the, the photograph is the same photograph that he has in his house and it's a photograph of none other than his mother right quote but alfred trevor did not speak the truth as many guests when he offered to take charge of the body and secure its internment in appleton over the library mantle of his home hung an exact replica of the picture and all his life he had known and loved its original for the gentle and noble features were those of his own mother so that said so this is eleanor wig or this is eleanor um, Trevor Nay Wig, uh, who was in this picture, married to Carl Trevor, mother of Alfred Trevor. Now, back to this very quick line about this transition from the engagement to Galpin to the marriage to Trevor, is that one word, soon, right? Eleanor Wig soon celebrated her marriage to Carl Trevor. Now, I don't know how soon that is. If it's soon enough, it's quite possible that that Alfred Trevor is the, is the son of Old Bugs, which might account for his uh, exuberant defense of, of Trevor's morality in the face of the temptations of, of alcohol. Um, however, I'm not, sh you know, she's kind of an educated type, so I'm not, I don't know if she would be the type to, to get pregnant before marriage. But anyways, we can imagine, we can hope, because then it all, it's like, 
it, it works. It, it, it's a better story that way because then you have Alfred Trevor being saved by his father that he runs into in a bar. Um, the father who had to abandon him to a life of debauchery and drunkenness and degeneration. All right, so I kind of went through the story in some detail. It's not a very long one, obviously. But we got a lot of great things here. We have um, another story of degeneracy. I think to some degree, at least we can read it this way, that we have a story of generational inheritance. But here we have a character who's able to overcome it, overcome his generational inher uh, uh, inheritance. Um, we got wonderful descriptions here of just of, of Lovecraft's vision of the underclass, of the urban underclass, and his disgust of urban spaces. I, I think that's something that's very clear in Lovecraft's 20s writing. And it's, it's here, too, a little bit in, in this, this particular work. Uh, we have a, a kind of a depiction of this literary class as well with Alfred Trevor, an artist, a writer, his mother, Galpin, being a, a literature person, but the capacity to decline from that, that status due to, to drink. However, at the end of the day, this story really is just a morality tale that he wrote for a friend who was deciding to give liquor a try. And that's probably as far as we should go with it. It doesn't have too many of his, his more crucial themes that I'm trying to explore in this podcast. But I, I do think acknowledging that Lovecraft was, a, a, he, did ha, he was a teetotal donor. He, he did not, he did have problems with drink. And, and this allows me to bring up some of his other uh, writings that he did around this time, a little bit earlier, where he talks about alcohol. Okay, so one of these is was published in 1915. It's an article called Liquor and Its Friends. And this is part of his amateur, amateur journalism um, time. And he talks about uh, uh, William Jennings Bryan. And he says, First, he, he sticks, he, he kind of says some net, net bad things about William Jennings Bryan, who was Secretary of State until 1915. Uh, was he when this was first written? I don't know. The suggestion is that he just resigned. Um, but, quote, Bryan, with its same will that made our administration ridiculous in its foreign policy, made it glorious in freedom from in vicious intemperance. So he praises Bryan for his temperance policies. Um, and he says his abolition of wine from tables of state was the first step towards giving the American people a high governmental example of decency. What all decent men had preached for nearly a century, the temperance move goes back to the 1830s, 1840s. Um, for nearly a century, he and he alone established where all might view it in exalted practice. His was the only true logic. The government attempts to keep its people to the law. Liquor attempts to stir the people against the law. No government can afford to demand virtue when all its members conspicuously violate it. Um, and later on in the same essay, he writes, if the United States government really desires order and virtue among its inhabitants, it will promptly require the most noxious evil of human life to be publicly sanctioned, to publicly sanctioned and flaunted in the very shadow of the Capitol's dome or within the White House itself. True reformation, contrary to the general idea, begins at the top and works downwards as if through gravity. Uh, so a couple of things here. One is he thinks the goal should be uh, eliminating drink. But his conservatism, his, his idea that change comes from the top through hierarchy, through, through order, is on 
display here too. His embrace of of the law, his embrace of government passing regulations or setting an example for others um, and hoping it will flit, flitter, uh, trickle down uh, through, through example is here. So Liquor and Its Friends is a, is a love, one of Lovecraft's articles on, on temperance. And he thinks, and he thinks the government should do more to, to model itself as, as, as a temperate domain. Now, ultimately, of course, uh, various state governments are going to pass dry laws and you know, it's eventually going to become a, an amendment to the Constitution, the prohibition of alcohol. And, and it lasts for a little bit over a decade. Uh, around the time that this, it starts around the time that Old Bugs was written. Uh, of course, Lovecraft wrote that essay originally in 1915. Now, a different article called A Remarkable Document, that's the name of it, published in 1917, uh, is another pro-temperance um, article. And he references here an essay by Mr. Booth Tarkington named, in, called Nip Skillion. So this is really just a commentary on another article, kind of a Lovecraft's description of it. And a lot of it's just re reciting, repeating what is said in that original Tarkington article. But Tark what interested Lovecraft here is how drink is inspiring and and attractive to people because it leads us to this kind of more base animalistic state. If you, if you remember uh, in Old Bugs, he actually calls the people living in the Chicago stockyards, attending places like Sheehan's pool house as human animals. So here's Lovecraft's commentary on this. Um, the prime incentive to drink is the desire for a greater degree of enjoyment and relaxation than is compatible with the normal mental and physical condition. In other words, human creatures long atavistically for the levity of an inferior state and wish to throw out artificially the burden of dignity with which evolution from the simian ape has invested them. So he's saying it's almost like we want to throw back to our days as, as, as apes. We want to go back to ape times. So what to make of this? Um, later on, drink we know is abnormal. But if we are to banish this abnormality, we must likewise banish the equally ab abnormality of excessive mental saboteurism. Um, well, I don't know. Think of that what you want. Uh, I sort of need both. I, I need the sabotism and, and, and the intellectual to have a full life. That's, that's my feeling, but that's not Lovecraft's, obviously. But the thing I want to deal with here is the novelty of alcohol. He's associating alcohol with some kind of pre-civilized state or even pre-human state that it brings us to. Okay, that's fine. But didn't, some people think agriculture itself may have been tied in some way to the brewing of beer because, you know, hunter-gatherers, they don't have to work very hard. They have most of their needs met through hunting and gathering. But if you want to have a supply of alcohol, you probably need a steady supply of some type of grain, right? So the original genetic manipulation that we did over centuries to transform grasses into wheat and other things, you know, was in part maybe done so we'd have a constant supply of, of stuff to brew beer with. And some people who think agriculture was begun by women, you know, are more specific and say maybe it was women brewing beer. Now, we don't really know. We can't really explain this. Maybe there's an anthropologist out there who can tell me 
uh, what current scholarship on this does, just something I came across before. Um, but the other point being that drink is evolutionarily novel, right? It's not something animals do. Animals don't get intoxicated. If anything, drunkenness, intoxication is a sign of our, our civility, our civilization. And are we surprised then that culturally drink is very important in community building, just as smoking is. I know smoking is another thing that gets frowned upon these days, much more so than drinking it even. Um, but it's a social custom. It's something people do together. I've been recently reading about Native Americans through the works of Francis Parkman Jr., an early American historian. And he talked all the time about how Indians in their social customs smoked, right? But certainly drink must have played that role. And as most cultures, even Christianity, has Holy Communion, which is the sharing of alcohol. So if anything, alcohol is evolutionarily novel. It's, it's a sign of our progress. And I think Lovecraft's just way, he's just wrong here. Uh, but whatever. He was a temperance advocate, at least in his youth. So it's not something he talks a lot about in his other stories. Shows up once in a while. But there you, there you have it. Old Bugs and a couple of little articles by Lovecraft about temperance. Um, but anyways, let me know what you think uh, about this story. If you've read it, leave your comments below. Send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I will uh, try to respond, and I'll, I'll, I'm looking forward to seeing what you have to say about it. Uh, next up, we'll be looking at another story that was not published during Lovecraft's lifetime, The Transition in in sense the death of Juan Romero. So it's the transition of Juan Romero, but transition there means essentially his death. Um, but there's something else going on there besides just his death. So my, the word death is not quite adequate for the story he's trying to tell. It's a good one. It's a fun one. And it's a, it's, it's a pity he, Lovecraft didn't think enough of it to get it published during his lifetime because I think it's, it's, it's got a lot to, to talk about. So I'm looking forward to sharing my thoughts about the transition of Juan Romero in the next episode. But uh, for now, that's all. Thanks for, for listening.